This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Narration by Jordan Wilson. Please visit GaryNorth.com slash freebooks to download this book in PDF format. Conspiracy in Philadelphia, Origins of the United States Constitution by Dr. Gary North. Publisher, Dominion Educational Ministries, Harrisonburg, Virginia. This book is dedicated to the members, living and dead, of Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America, who for over two centuries have smelled a rat in Philadelphia. Conclusion. Genesis, chapter 14, verse 13. And there came one that had escaped, and told Abram the Hebrew. For he dwelt in the plain of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eschol, and brother of Aner. And these were confederate with Abram. Exodus twenty-three thirty-two: Thou shalt make no covenant with them, nor with their gods. Quote from Continental Congress, July 4th, 1776. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's gods entitle them. End quote. What went wrong with the American experiment in Christian freedom? Essentially the same thing that has been going wrong with Christianity since the early 2nd century, a compromise with false gods. It began in the early church with the assumption that the false gods of Greek philosophy spoke to man with the same common language and message that the God of the Bible speaks. This intellectual error has continued to undermine all attempts to construct Christian civilization ever since. The idea that there is common ground intellectually with covenant breakers is really a symptom of a much worse error, the idea that there is common ethical ground between the believer and the unbeliever. That is not to say that there is no possible connection. There is. It is based on the fact that all men are made in God's image. There can be, therefore, there can therefore be limited cooperation under some historical conditions because of the work, uh, work of the law written on the hearts of all covenant breakers. This does not refer to God's law itself, which is the exclusive heart-engraved possession of Christians. The possibility of such cooperation declines as covenant breakers and covenant keepers begin to act more consistently with their underlying rival religious presuppositions. The idea that there can be common ground ethically and intellectually between covenant keepers and covenant breakers then leads to the third error. There can be common ground judicially, civil covenants. This is the assumption that officially undergirds the common hierarchies, laws, and courts of all modern secular civil governments. It does not matter if, for a time, subordinate civil governments continue to maintain a Christian confession. The covenantal confession of the national civil government inevitably will determine the con covenantal confession of the regional civil governments under it. The central government must settle regional disputes and make national policy in terms of a single confession. Regional and local civil governments have agreed to subordinate themselves to a common central government. The god of this central government then becomes the suzerain of the local governments. The national pantheon may be full or it may be empty. The fact of the matter is, the god of the national covenant is the god of the composite local governments. There is no escape from the five points of the covenant. Things may not appear to be this way when the covenant is first cut, but here is where the system must end up unless the nation, one, changes its covenants voluntarily, two, falls militarily to another nation, or three, breaks apart into smaller jurisdictional units. Two centuries after the United States broke covenant with God, very few American Christians have any idea that this was what took place in 1788. They see the growing evils that surround them, yet they do not even suspect a connection between these events and the events of 1785-88. to They do not think in terms of sanctions against covenantal apostasy. They do not think covenantally. James Madison did, so did John Adams. The American Revolution. Having a common enemy in 1776, i.e. Great Britain, made it easy for the Christian state commonwealths to forget a biblical covenantal requirement, the prohibition of covenants between covenant-keeping commonwealths and covenant-breaking commonwealths. Quote, Thou shalt make no covenant with them, nor with their gods, Exodus 23, 32. Temporary political and military alliances and confederations with government covenant breakers are legitimate, as the example of Abram, Abraham shows in Genesis 14, 13. Civil covenants are not. They forget because the Unitarian religion of Isaac Newton had already successfully compromised the Trinitarian religion of Jesus Christ. Everyone in colonial America assumed that there are common, God-given, natural laws and rights. Everyone assumed that a public acknowledgement of the sovereignty of the Unitarian God of Newton was the covenantal equivalent of a public acknowledgement of the sovereignty of the Trinitarian God of the Bible.
They assumed, as Christian Masons assumed, and still assume, that the great architect of the universe is the creator god of the book of Genesis. Thus, when Great Britain became perceived as the common enemy of all the colonies, the patriots, or of the covenantally Christian states, assumed that they could make a military alliance with the one state that was not formally covenanted to the God of the Bible, or at least less formally covenanted. They assumed that because the citizens of all the states were Christians, there was no danger in confederation among the state governments that politically represented these Christian citizens. There was great danger, as events soon proved. The war escalated rapidly, and self-defense appeared to require more than a mere confederation, it required a covenant. The Declaration of Independence was more than a statement of the creation of a new alliance. It declared the creation of a new nation of sovereign states. It was a classic halfway covenant. In the words of Lincoln in the Gettysburg Address, it was a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. All men are indeed created equal, equally guilty of transgressing God's covenant with Adam, equally under the negative sanctions of God. But a new birth is possible by God's grace, adoption by God through Jesus Christ into the household of God. This makes men covenantally unequal. It creates an eternal distinction between two kinds of people, covenant keepers and covenant breakers. These rival judicial conditions must be revealed in radically different views of other civil judicial status, of their civil judicial status. There will be screening. The question is, by whose covenant? The problem in understanding this judicial screening process is easy to state but hard to comprehend. Namely, covenants are judicially binding under God. He takes them seriously, as seriously as he takes church covenants and family covenants. The civil and military alliance of the revolutionary period from July 4, 1776 until the ratification of the Articles by the state legislatures in 1781 was more than an alliance, it was a covenant. The Declaration of Independence was not heralded as a covenantal document, but it, is one. it was one. It had to be. It formally dissolved the precious civil covenantal ties with Great Britain. Quote, when in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, and to assume among the powers of earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, end quote, the sovereign of this new civil covenant was Newtonian's Unitarian God of Nature. Thus, the next step, establishing the bylaws of a formal covenant, was far easier to take. A Unitarian Rebellion In their act of Unitarian political rebellion, the colonies committed treason, not just against Great Britain, but against God. This is what the heirs of the American Revolution never admit, even in private. Neither the revolutionaries nor their heirs have taken covenant theology seriously, so the covenantal character of that civil rebellion has simply been ignored for over two centuries. The revolutionary leaders did not clearly and formally appeal to the Trinitarian God of the Bible in defending their rebellion. Instead, they appealed forthrightly again and again to Newton's Unitarian God. The Congress asked a committee of five men to write the covenantal document that formally broke the existing covenant with the king. Jefferson became their covenantal representative, and therefore the new nation's representative, point two of biblical covenant. Congress then sanctioned this act of civil covenant breaking when its members signed the document, the document point four. Had they made their case for separation in terms of the monarchy's two-century-old break with the Bible, Erastianism, the theology of the national state church, or with the growing deism of the parliament and the resultant corruption and tyranny, an unlimited parliamentary power asserted by Parliament and defended by Blackstone, they could have justified their civil rebellion biblically, but they chose to have Christianity's mortal enemy write the nation's covenant-breaking document, and so John Winthrop's dream died. There is no neutrality. There is no neutral legal ground between a civil covenant under one sovereign and a civil covenant under another. A new covenant and a new sovereign are substituted for an earlier covenant and sovereign. To use the language of the Arminian and deistic social contracts contract theorists, there is never a return to the state of nature. The colonists knew this much, even if they did not understand biblical covenant theology very well. They were necessarily creating a new civil covenant when they broke the old one. This is why Congress on July 4th set up a committee to create a national seal. Great Britain had unquestionably, unquestionably become bureaucratic. It was no longer the nation it had once been, but it was still a covenantally Christian nation. In fact, one of the major resentments that the Protestants 
of the colonies had against Great Britain was that they believed that the Church of England was planning to send a bishop to the colonies, therefore making it much easier to ordain new Anglican pastors here. Previously, candidates for the Anglican ministry had been required to travel to London, where the Bishop of London would consider ordaining them. No one else had this authority. This sea journey drastically reduced the supply of, Amer of Anglican pastors in the colonies. The colonists suspected that this move by the Anglican ch Church was an attempt to strengthen Anglicanism and therefore the English crown, for the king was the head of the church. Thus, the original Erastian area of Reformation England, a national church with a civil sovereign as its head, had led once again to a major political crisis, just as it had in the 1640s. The Defection of the Pastors a major colonial patriot, a majority of colonial patriot pastors became Whig Commonwealthmen rather than Holy Commonwealthmen during the years of the Revolution. They became dissenters in the sense of the Whig radical dissenters. They saw the need to escape an Anglican bishop in the colonies, but they did not see the enormous threat to Christian civilization posed by the Unitarians and Masons who were becoming the colonial leaders and who were articulating the civil principles of the Revolution. The pastors became the Black Regiment of the Revolution, but they did not become its general officers. In 1776, they became chaplains at home and in camp for an army that was under the hierarchical control of a dedicated mason of great public virtue. They preached their fast day sermons and their regimental sermons just as they had preached election day sermons since the Indian Wars of 1675 as anointers of the state. Their messages had been self-consciously devoid of specific biblical judicial content for a century by the time of the Revolutionary War. But this did not change 1776 to 1798. The pastors had long since deferred politically to the lawyers. The lawyers inherited the kingdom of politics during the American Revolution. They did, they did so ingeniously. In fact, like the rise of the empire in Rome, politics fell into the, their hands as a byproduct of war. Christians made that most fundamental of foreign policy mistakes, quote, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. They made it within each colony when they allowed Unitarians, Deists, and Masons to make the civil case for revolution, and they made it again in the creation of a new nation that was formally subordinate to the Unitarian God of Mr. Jefferson and Mr. Adams. When they broke their state covenants with the English king on the basis of political and economic grievances, the self-interested complaints of the lawyers and the merchants, when in fact they needed to break covenant with a morally corrupt parliament and the Erastian Anglican church, they broke their covenant with the God of the Bible. He immediately delivered them into the hands of their theological enemies. They wound up in 1788 with a broken national halfway covenant and a new covenantal bondage. Americans remained in that bondage. From the day that John Witherspoon signed the Declaration of Independence as the symbolic representative of the colonial clergy, with Christian physician Benjamin Rush alongside, the new halfway covenant was sealed. Rush's confidence in the wisdom of this act began to waver within a year. Witherspoon's never did. After July 4, 1776, it was then just a matter of extending the apostate principles of the original halfway covenant into a full-scale apostate covenant. The New Nationalism Nature, nature's God, natural law, and natural rights disappeared from the Constitution. Historian Carl Becker wrote in 1922, quote, In the Declaration of the Foundation of the United States is indissolubly associated with the theory of politics, a philosophy of human rights which is valid, if at all, not for Americans only, but for all men. This association gives the Declaration its perennial interest, end quote. Yet a few pages later, he noted, almost as an aside, that these ideas disappeared in 19th century constitutions. Natural rights are absent, he said, quote, even where we should perhaps most expect it in the Constitution of the United States, end quote. On the contrary, if my theory of apostate covenantalism is correct, this is exactly where we should not expect it. When the American nation moved from biblical covenantalism to halfway covenantalism, it remained open to a universal God, though Newtonian Unitarian. Article, 4, clause, Article 6, Clause 3 of the Constitution closed the door judicially to any transcendent God beyond the political order itself. The Constitution is therefore an apostate covenant. A holy new God is ordained in it, a God acknowledged by the framers in order to ordain it and ratify it, the American people. This is not a universal God, it is a national God. This national God can neither offer nor defend any universal rights of man. It can only offer power to the national state with, with derivative power in the states. 
the national state becomes the sole definer and guarantor of American rights, which today means five people on the U.S. Supreme Court. Farewell to Christendom. Washington's farewell address of 1796, a newspaper article, not an actual verbal address, reflected a major change in the thinking of Americans. A new nationalism had already appeared. Washington's address merely ratified this shift in popular thinking. There must be no covenants with other nations, Washington said. He did not use the words, no entangling alliances, but this is what he meant. He thereby announced the end of the older Puritan vision of Trinitarian Universalism, the kingdom of God on earth. There can be no covenanted community of nations in a world marked by nation-states created by exclusively national democratic gods. The new democratic nationalism destroyed the covenantal foundation of Christendom when it removed the covenantal foundation of Trinitarian national covenants. There is no neutrality. There are two kingdoms in history. Both kingdoms seek to establish covenantal connections. Satan's kingdom is an empire, a top-down centralized bureaucratic system. Initiative is at the top. God's kingdom is a bottom-up, decentralized, appeals court system. Initiative is at the bottom. In God's kingdom, Christian localism is supposed to lead also to Christian regionalism, to Christian nationalism, and finally to Christian internationalism, just as it was supposed to do in Old Covenant Israel. Israel failed in internationalizing God's kingdom, so God gave the kingdom to a new nation, the Church International. Matthew 21, verse 42 and 43. Christian civil governments are supposed to imitate the churches, and the churches are not to remain the tiny, fragmented, isolated institution that, Mad Madis that Madisonians have made them. Like the Trinity who created it, the International Church of Jesus Christ is to be both one, a unity based on Athanasian confessionalism, and many, traditional denominational practices and confessions. The problem is, the churches for over three centuries have imitated the national state, a disastrous legacy of Erastianism, the National Church-Nation-State Alliance. It was this that the American colonies should have revolted against in 1776. Instead, they allowed the merchants, the lawyers, the Unitarians, and the Freemasons to set the agenda for covenant-breaking revolution. The result is today's apostate national covenantalism and denominational impotence, just as Madison planned. In contrast to God's kingdom, Satan's empire leads to the reduction of localism through the investiture of total political power at the top, the central international state facing the lone, atomized individual. This is Rousseau's nationalism writ large, the political elimination of all intermediary institutions. It is also Madison and Hamilton's, the political trivialization of all intermediary institutions. Hamilton wrote in Federalist 23 that, quote, there is an absolute necessity for an entire change in the first principles of the system, that if we are earnest about giving the Union energy and duration, we must abandon the vain project of legislating upon the states in their collective capacities. We must extend the laws of the federal government to the individual citizens of America, end quote. But where would this principle of extension end? At what border? By what standard? This new nationalism also created the need for a new humanist international pantheon, i.e. the revival of imperial Rome, an international one-world order which must be a one-state order, a world in which the national gods remain forever silent except as relics of the new world order. This was not clear to the participants in 1787. By the 20th century, it had become more clear. What I am arguing is that nationalism is an intermediary historical step in the progress of the two kingdoms. It is not the final resting place of either Christian covenantalism or humanistic covenantalism. We are inevitably headed toward world government, both civil and ecclesiastical. World government is an inescapable concept given the universalistic claims of both God and Satan. Neither God nor Satan is about to back off in his claims for total allegiance. The political question therefore is this, by whose covenant will this world government be created? The authority of the modern nation-state is now visibly fading. It faces breakup through fragmentation on one hand and breakdown through absorption into larger geopolitical entities on the other. The international one is being accompanied by the international many. As the call for international sovereignty increases, so does the call for ethnic autonomy. The nation-state is caught between rival movements. It is losing legitimacy. Jefferson's Declaration of Independence compromised the original Christian covenantalism of the states by joining them together in an alliance of independent states under the authority of nature and nature's God, a myth of Unitarian theology. The Articles of Confederation completed the Declaration's halfway covenant by creating the United States of America, a true covenant document rather than a mere alliance of judicially independent states.
The Constitution then eliminated all references to the Newtonian God and his supposed grant of, of rights to men. It created a new national God, one that is an affront to humanist internationalism, but also an affront to Christian internationalism. So powerful is the Constitution in the eyes of American Christians that they have rejected Christian internationalism as if it were a satanic philosophy. They have lost the Puritan vision. That was precisely Madison's agenda in 1787. By trivializing the churches and by exalting the new national government, he dealt a blow against Puritanism. Puritanism has yet to recover, yet Christians cheer even those who think of themselves as neo-Puritans. Miss Hall's Dilemma The late Verna Hall is well known to conservative Christian teachers in America. Her red books serve as textbooks for many Christian day schools and homeschools. I first met her in the summer of 1963. She was an attendee at a conference on American history sponsored by the Center for American Studies, a spinoff of the William Volcker Fund. The, organi the organizer of the conference was R.J. Rushduni. I have already mentioned that Miss Hall began her Christian history of the Constitution project when she was a Christian scientist. She had been a secretary for Mildred LeBlond, a teacher in the Christian science movement. Mrs. LeBlond got in trouble with church authorities over her work in American colonial history, so she turned over the leadership of her study group to Miss Hall in the 1950s. Miss Hall subsequently left Christian science, but the editor of her first volume, Joseph Montgomery, did not. That a case can be made for the Christian history of the American Revolution is obvious. There were dedicated and articulate Christians on both sides, just as there were Freemasons on both sides. There were a few free thinkers on either side. Tom Paine and Ethan Allen are the famous ones. What is difficult to demonstrate from the historical record is the Christian history of the Constitution. Miss Hall's project was begun by a Christian scientist. Miss Hall's books never reached the era of the convention. Miss Hall has articulated the dilemma that we Christians face as Christians, the nature of self-government. Quote, the first lesson the American Christian must learn if he would successfully develop, maintain, or restore the Christian Republic is Christian self-government. Self-government, without the modifier Christian in its full biblical meaning, is nothing more than self-will, regardless of initial intent to be good or do good. Man without Christ cannot succeed in producing lasting good. End quote. Quote, Never in the history of the world has there been such an example of Christian voluntary union in civil affairs as was exhibited by the colonists between 1775 and 1783. The costly experience laid the groundwork for the adoption of our national federal constitution six years later in 1789, Madison began to plan for the convention in 1785. This was his self-conscious attempt to overthrow what Miss Hall calls Christian voluntary union in civil affairs. She never understood that her task was inherently impossible. To reconcile the theology of the Constitution with the theology of the Christian Covenantal Federation that had preceded it, Miss Hall's volumes end no later than 1777. There is surely a reason for this, other than lack of time or money, for the first volume appeared in 1960. The last, Consider and Ponder, appeared in 1976. She died over a decade later, her publishing foundation still solvent, a remarkable achievement given the narrow intellectual focus of its publications. I single out her dedicated efforts because she devoted her life to this project, yet it never came close to reaching its stated goal, the Constitutional Convention. Her books never even reached the formal introduction of the Articles of Confederation in 1777. These collected primary sources are useful, but they do not prove the thesis of her book's titles, The Christian History of the Constitution. Her books do reveal the Christian history of the colonial American period up to 1777. They do not show anything after that. They end. To escape the restriction of the copyright laws, Miss Hall included extracts from late 19th century textbooks and other narrative sources. These narratives were frequently written by non-Trinitarians for non-Christians controlled American publishing after the Civil War. John Fisk, for example, was one of the great champions of evolutionism. Historiography is not a neutral enterprise. It is shaped by the presuppositions of the authors. There was no market for explicitly Christian histories in 1890. There is very little demand even today, and even... Then, what we got is Noel Hatch Marsden. There are a lot of conservative Christians who have seen the set's title, but who have not read the contents. They take it for granted that the set's primary source documents really do prove that the Constitution was originally Christian. This is a grave mistake. There are no primary source documents in these books that extend beyond the outbreak of the Revolutionary War. What the documents of the era do show is that after the war ended, Christian influences in the country declined for a decade or more. A second Great Awakening began after the Constitution was ratified no earlier than 1797, and most notably in 1800. 
This decline in Christian influence is the argument of Knoll, Hatch, and Marsden, and is corroborated by most of the primary sources that I am familiar with. American pastors certainly complained about this moral decline in their published sermons and private correspondence and diaries. The Unasked Questions in the preface to Christian History of the Constitution, 1960, Miss Hall says that she began her intellectual journey when she was employed by a, by a federal bureaucracy that she recognized was socialistic in intent. She makes no mention of Mildred LeBlanc's original efforts, nor Mr. Montgomery's unchanging theological commitment. She wondered how this had come about, given the existence of the Constitution. There is a correct, simple answer. One would have pained her greatly because of the Constitution. The Constitution's framers unquestionably began their historic efforts with the presupposition of the indispensability of moral self-government. Nevertheless, the document they produced categorically and formally rejects the concept of a Christian self-government. And citing Ms. Hall again, self-government without the modifier Christian in its full biblical meaning is nothing more than self-will regardless of an initial intent to be or do good. Man without Christ cannot succeed in producing lasting good." End quote. The good that the Constitution was intended to do could not survive unscathed. The hard question that is never faced clearly and decisively by those who defend the theory of the Christian origin of the Constitution is this one, quote, Why were the Articles of Confederation inherently less Christian than the Constitution, and so ineffective that a conspiracy had to be entered into, organized initially in 1785-87 through 87 by Freemasons, Deists, and Proto-Unitarians, in order to restore inherently Christian principles of national government, end quote. To put it another way, why are the lawyers in charge of the convention and the pastors absent? Why were the pamphlet debates of 1787 conducted in terms of Roman historical examples and not biblical historical examples? Why was there never any appeal to specific biblical laws, but endless appeals to natural laws? Why were the symbols adopted by the Continental Congress, the convention, and the post-war nation systematically non-Christian? Why, if the Constitution is Christian, is the name of Jesus Christ missing? There is only one sensible answer. The U.S. Constitution is not Christian, but Christians resist this answer. They want to blame later generations of politicians for the decline of Christian political influence. They want to share in the glory of the convention. This is a, tr a strategic mistake, and it is surely a historiographical mistake. Surprised Christians we should not be surprised to learn that Joseph Smith, founder of Mormonism, taught that the Constitutional Convention was either divinely inspired or very close to it. Quote, and for this purpose, he, is, he has, God say, quote, Have I established the constitution of this land by the hands of wise men whom I raised up unto this very purpose and redeemed the land by the shedding of blood? End quote. Smith prayed, quote, Have mercy, O Lord, upon all the nations of the earth. Have mercy upon the rulers of the land. May those principles which were so honorably and nobly defended, namely the constitution of our land by our fathers, be established forever. End quote. The reason why we should not be surprised at this is because Joseph Smith was a Freemason, and Mormonism adopts many Masonic symbols, most notably the beehive. It also adopts Masonic rituals. These facts are freely admitted by E. Cecil McGavin in his book Mormonism and Masonry in 1956, which is often sold in Mormon bookstores. The same title was used by Grandmaster S. H. Good for his 1925 book which makes many of the same observations regarding the parallels. Smith's last words, quote, O Lord my God, is a Masonic cry, and he uttered it because he hoped that the Masons in the crowd that killed him would intervene on his behalf. He received no mercy from that constituency. What is surprising is that so many conservative Christians today are seeking the previously hidden Christian roots of the U.S. Constitution. These are not hidden roots, they are missing roots. The roots of the Constitution are Rhode Island political theory, Newtonian philosophy, Deist Unitarian Whig social theory, Scottish Enlightenment rationalism, and Masonic universalism. The Constitution's structure was Christian Puritan, its content was humanist. There may, there may well be trappings that are Christian, for the framers were men of their era, and that era was at bottom Christian. But the Christianity of 18th century America was deeply schizophrenic. Newton was the favored model, not Paul and Mars Hill in Acts 17. The primary problem with Protestant Christianity in the 18th century was its ethical and judicial dualism, biblical law versus natural law. The problem has been dualism for 1800 years. The two systems are rival systems, yet Christians persist in arguing that they are at bottom the same, even when they simultaneously insist that there is no neutrality. 
They affirm, yet subsequently deny, that the first lesson that American Christian must learn if he would successfully develop, maintain, or restore the Christian Republic is Christian self-government. Self-government, without the modifier Christian in its full biblical meaning, is nothing more than self-will, regardless of initial intent to, do, to be or do good. Man without Christ cannot succeed in producing lasting good. End quote. Constantine or Pharaoh? I have argued that the framers were generally committed to a specific historical model, Republican Rome. They used Roman pseudonyms in their pamphlet wars. So did their anti-federalist adversaries. They adopted Roman architecture for the nation's capital. But there was a problem that they all recognized and feared for good reason. reason. Republican Rome became imperial Rome, imperial Rome. Cicero was no doubt eloquent. He also died a fugitive from justice, slain by agents of the civil authorities. If Vox Populi is in fact Vox Dei, why did Cicero die a fugitive of the people's justice? The pantheon of Rome was polytheistic in appearance, but it was monotheistic in substance. The many gods of the expa expanding republic were united by their place in Rome's religious order. They publicly manifested the unifying power of the Roman state. By the time of Christ, the republic had become the empire. The Roman pantheon was then international in scope. Every god of every captive people had a lawful place in the pantheon, testifying publicly to the subordination of each god's city to the empire. One god was conspicuously absent from his pantheon, the god of the Bible. This god acknowledged no other god and no other kingdom but his own. Rome was under the authority of this god, not over it, and so there was from the beginning an inevitable civil war between Christ and Caesar, church and state. This war was eventually won by the earthly representatives of the ascended Christ. Christians finally replaced pagans in the offices of civil authority. This Constantinian settlement still outrages and embarrasses political polytheists in the modern church. In the modern church, fundamentalists, pietists, new evangelical liberals, and Christian college professors everywhere—they much prefer to see pagans occupy the seats of civil authority. So the example of Constantine offends them. They prefer a contemporary political polytheism analogous to that of the Roman pantheon, either because they secretly worship the messianic monotheism of the state political liberals, humanists, and some neo-evangelicals, or because they refuse to acknowledge that statism is always the political manifestation of polytheism. Fundamentalists, Lutherans, most Calvinists, and any remaining neo-evangelicals. Like the Hebrew e slaves in Egypt, they prefer rule by polytheistic taskmasters in the service of a divine state to self-rule under God's revealed law, administered in terms of biblical covenants. The end result of this perverse preference are grim, added years of bondage in Egypt, followed by aimless wanderings in the wilderness, or else the fate of Korah and Dathan. Numbers 16. It is time to begin making plans for the conquest of Canaan. Biblical Law or Natural Law In a perspective essay on the relationship between the biblical covenant and modern constitutional law, E. M. Gaffney presents a, subject, a subsection, Quote, American constitutional law as a corrective to religion. He announces, The main burden of this essay has been to show that secular law influenced the formation and development of major themes of biblical religion. It is now my point that American constitutional law can continue to serve this function by correcting adherence to biblical religion when they fail to either accept the demands of biblical religion concerning justice and freedom, or when they fail to acknowledge that in some major respects, biblical religion did not adequately adequately resolved issues of justice and freedom, end quote. He then appeals to the Torah as a document promoting a pluralism of legal traditions. This is, pr this is proved, he says, by the conflicting interpretations of the Bible. He forthrightly contrasts the Bible and justice. This is standard humanist fare, especially humanism within the churches. Biblical law is seen as offering society a potential threat of tyranny, a means of unleashing the oppressive forces in society. The presumption here is that humanistic law is the proper corrective for biblical oppression. Christianity is therefore desperately in need of humanism in order to maintain freedom. So runs the standard halfway covenant party line. The historical problems with such arguments in that the church has almost always systematically avoided the implementation of biblical law. We have not seen biblical law in action in Christian societies. Instead, century after century, church scholars have imported the prevailing brands of humanist philosophy, social theory, and jurisprudence into the churches, all in the name of justice. And when one society did its best to avoid this error, 
New England Puritanism, Roger Williams appeared on the scene and started the first covenantally open society to serve as the model. Winthrop or Williams Yale historian Edmund Morgan describes the Puritans, quote, Nevertheless, the Puritans did make strong demands on human nature, for they were engaged in a mission that required great exertion. They had undertaken to establish a society where the will of God would be observed in every detail, a kingdom, a kingdom of God on earth. While still aboard the Arabella, Arbella, Winthrop had asked to his fellow immigrants their solemn commitment to this task. Every nation they all knew existed by virtue of a covenant with God in which it promised to obey his commands. They had left England because England was failing in its promise. In high hope that God was guiding them and would find their efforts acceptable, they had proposed to form a new society. Now God had demonstrated his approval. He had made way for them by a special overruling providence, by staying his wrath so long and allowing them to depart in peace by delivering them safe across the water. He had sealed a covenant with them and given them a special responsibility to carry out the good intentions that had brought them into the wilderness. Theirs was a special commission. And when God gives a special commission, Winthrop warned them, he looks, he looks to have it strictly observed in every article, end quote. William Sperry, dean of the Harvard Divinity School, has painted an accurate picture of Williams, who took for his social model natural law rather than covenant theology. Quote, he lived only some 40 miles from Boston, but between Providence and Boston, a great gulf was fixed, and theologically and ecclesiastically, Williams believed that the sources of the state should be sought and found in the secular rather than in the spiritual order. The right of magistrates is natural, human, civil, not religious. The officer of the state gains nothing and loses nothing by being a Christian, or by not being. Likewise, the Christian merchant, physician, lawyer, pilot, father, master, are not better equipped for fulfilling their social functions than are members of any other religion. There can be no such thing as a Christian business or a Christian profession of law or medicine. These vocations stand in their own right. No state may claim superiority over any other state by virtue of being, or professing to be, Christian. The state is not irreligious, it is simply non-religious. As for the church, William said it was like a college of physicians, a company of East India merchants, or any other society in London, which may convene themselves and dissolve themselves at pleasure. Roger Williams' ideas in these matters were, and still are, overstatements and oversimplifications, oversimplifications of the problem. Indeed, he followed the logic of his own thinking so far, that, so far that he outgrew the visible organized church, even of his own independent kind, and finally parted with all institutional religion. Yet his overstatements were so true to Baptist convictions that one can readily see how the strongest single sect in the colonies advocating religious liberty for all was an entire good conscience prohibited by its own faith from any slightest interest in a union of church and state. End quote. But this does not answer the more fundamental covenantal problem. What about the union of religion and state? No, one, no state can live without a religion. There is no neutrality. The question is, which religion? There is no question which religion the Baptists chose for their state, Jeffersonian Unitarianism. This remains the continuing political manifestation of the failure of the American Baptist culture. The choice for Christians in America has been this one since 1636, John Winthrop or Roger Williams, God's law or man's law, civil covenant keeping or civil, civil covenant breaking. For well over three centuries, Americans have made the wrong choice. Civil covenant, civil compacts are broken covenants. I have not dis discussed in detail in this book what I regard as the great myth of modern liberalism, from Locke to the present, the myth that out of correctly devised procedural arrangements, coupled with an undefined personal and civil virtue, society can produce, or at least encourage, the creation of a good society. This myth was the foundation of 18th century Enlightenment humanism, both right-wing and left-wing. The virtuous humanist leader, whether Washington or Robespierre, is not a defender of explicitly Christian virtues. The theoretical foundations of this myth collapsed with the coming of Darwinism, but the myth's rhetoric still persists whenever the co covenantal remains of, a, of that lost world are proclaimed as the law of the land whenever Christians are told that the idea of biblical theocracy is morally perverse and the idea of a political pluralism is God's preferred plan for the new covenant era. To build a good society, there must be first an accurate vision of, of the good society, a fixed vision unaltered by the flux of history. There must also be a permanent concept of personal morality that remains constant despite changing circumstances. 
these two visions must reinforce each other, the good society and the righteous individual. This combination was lacking in Greek political philosophy. The righteous philosopher, who was to be a master of doubt, was seen both by Socratic philosophers and by Athenian civil authorities as a threat to the stability and peace of, covenantal, of conventional society. There was supposedly great virtue in big lies. This is one reason, though, not the only reason, why the philosopher king was supposed to to resort to misleading rhetoric and noble lies. There must also be an institutional arrangement to bridge the gap between the mutually reinforcing social and individual ideals within the flux of history. Humanism offers no consistent, widely agreed upon solution to these problems. This is why the voluntary civil contract between men or among men is no valid substitute for the civil covenant between or among men under the sovereign creator God of the Bible. We must never forget that there is no such thing as a civil compact. All such hypothetical compacts are in fact covenants under God, whether the participants believe this or not. The same is true of marriage contracts. Such a contractual view of society denies that God has created society, established hierarchies, declared as permanent law, enforces this law in history through his positive and negative sanctions, and directs history so that his people progressively inherit the earth. This view denies the reality of Psalm 37, 9. Quote, for evildoers shall be cut off, but those that wait upon the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. End quote. It replaces the personal God of the Bible with the God of the state. The state, as the judge and enforcer, becomes the agent that declares the will of the people. Modern civil justice is viewed by liberals as the product of procedurally precise confrontations between trained specialists in the law rule by lawyers. The, most, the almost pathological and potentially bankrupting quest for procedural perfection in the modern American court system is a consistent development of the 17th and 18th century liberal philosophy. But there is no way for the humanist to prove that procedural precision during the lawyer's confrontation can in fact produce justice, except by defining justice as, quote, the product of a procedurally precise process, end quote. There is no higher law to appeal to, and no sanctioning agency other than the state, except during a revolution. The Expansion of the Autonomous State When men abandon biblical covenantalism, they must find a substitute. There is no escape from covenantalism. The question always is, whose covenant? Modern liberalism became steadily statist, except for a brief interlude during the 19th century pre-1890, because the state, as the sovereign enforcer of the people's covenant, has attained the position of divine right status. There is no appeal beyond it. It alone supposedly speaks authoritatively for the sovereign people. Revolution alone can legitimately overturn the state, but this must always be in the name of the true sovereign, the people. This worldview is the legacy of John Locke. A political compact among autonomous men has replaced the biblical covenant replaced the biblical covenant as the agreed-upon source of social continuity. Therefore, the primary goal of politics today, and just about everything else, is to gain control over the monopolistic voice of authority, the state. Claimants today for the crucial position of voice of the sovereign people are surely as numerous as the defenders of contract theory assert with regard to their traditional opponents, the theocratic Christians. Whig liberals, in reaction to the Puritan Revolution of 1642-1660, successfully ridiculed the churches and sects on this basis. Surely they could not all have represented God, but the same accusation can be made against the critics today. Surely not all the claimants to the, to the office of a special spokesman are accurately representing the sovereign people. When it comes for numbers of claimants, in fact, the humanists today are far more numerous than theocratic claimants who say they are the voice of the sovereign God of the Bible. In this day and age, Christians are almost completely politically humbled. They are terrified of the thought that they might in fact really be God's lawful designated authorities in speaking for God in the realm of, the, of civil law. They do not even want to think about the possibility that God's revealed laws in the Bible are God's required standards for modern jurisprudence. They do not want to bring God's covenant lawsuit against any nation. They have been steadily browbeaten on this point since at least 1660. The Religion of Procedure Contractualism is evolutionary when honored and revolutionary when transcended. It is an empty ethical shell. Lenin once remarked about making omelets that you have to break a lot of eggs. 
If there are no ethical standards inside the contractual shells, then we should expect to see a lot of broken shells as time goes by as people continue their search for righteous civil government. There is no sovereign God in contractualism who will judge the righteousness of men's contracts in time or eternity. Man is officially on his own. Thus, there is only only procedure. In cases of civil dispute, the only question is, which of the parties best honored the formal terms of the contract, meaning the letter of the contract. This means the triumph of fine print and the lawyers who alone can interpret it. To the extent that questions of ethics enter into the judge's decision, substantive questions, the result is judicial arbitrariness. Such judicial arbitrariness erodes the very foundation and justification of contractualism, procedural predictability. This creates an intellectual atmosphere favorable to revolution. Every would-be spokesman for the people wants to be sure that his version of God's word is enforced. The inherent inevitable dualism or diaclecticism between formal procedure and ethics, between the letter of humanist law and the spirit of humanist law, offers no permanent solution to the perpetual question, what is the righteous decision of the sigil magistrate, jury, or judge? And this means there is no humanist answer to the question, what procedural arrangement can be devised to increase the likelihood that righteous decisions will be made by those in authority? The framers attempted to devise such a system, but their endeavor was doomed from the beginning, for they denied the legitimacy of the biblical covenant. They broke the halfway national covenant as surely as the Articles broke the Trinitarian state covenants nationally. Conclusion By 1800, the myth of the National Covenant was just about gone. The churches, in the words of Perry Miller, were forced to recognize that in fact they now dealt with the deity only as as particular individuals gathered for historical capricious reasons into this or that communion. They had to realize, at first painfully, that as a united people, they had no contractual relationship with the Creator, and that consequently a national controversy with Him could no longer exist, end quote. He wrote contractual, but he clearly meant covenantal. Miller saw what the key issue was, sanctions. There would be no more national controversies with God. He would no longer threaten the nation with his negative sanctions. Despite the facts that I have surveyed in this study, we find that from the beginning of the constitutional era, Christian historians have promoted the myth of the Christian origin of the Constitution. Philip Schaff, the most prominent American church historian of the late 19th century, summarized this view, and the language of his imitators has not deviated in any significant respect. Quote, We may go further and say that the Constitution not only contains nothing which is irreligious or unchristian, but is Christian in substance, though not in form. It is pervaded by the spirit of justice and humanity which are Christian. The Constitution, moreover, and recognizing and requiring an official oath from the president and all legislative, executive, and judicial officers, both of the United States and of the several states, recognizes the supreme being to whom the oath is a solemn appeal. And finally, the framers of the Constitution were, without exception, believers in God and in future rewards and punishments from the presiding officer, General Washington, who is a communicant member of the Episcopal Church down to the least orthodox, Dr. Ben Franklin." There are minor minor variations, of course. Rush Dooney argues that the Constitution is neutral both in substance and in procedure, but on the whole, Schaff's statement is representative of two centuries of incomparable historical misrepresentation, a myth that is taken seriously by virtually all conservative American Christians. The conspirators of 1787 were successful beyond their wildest dreams. Their victims still do do not know what happened to them. That a serious historian could write about the oath in this manner, the oath that is in fact the exact opposite of what Schaff claimed it is, is mind-boggling. It is self-deception on a scale not normally encountered, not even in academia. This oath does indeed recognize the supreme being to whom the oath is a solemn appeal. That supreme being is the sovereign incorporating people. Article 6, Clause 3 announces theologically speaking, quote, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Cornelius Van Til was correct when he argued that Christian philosophy has always been corrupted by the Greek idea of autonomous man. This compromise is the intellectual foundation of political polytheism. The humanists, until the era of Darwin, successfully appealed to the Christian's philosophy of common ground law and morality. They invoked a traditional intellectual compromise, the language of scholastic philosophy, natural law, natural rights, and right reason. 
Christians cannot legitimately expect to beat something with nothing, yet they officially have nothing biblical to offer. So they surrender civil government to their covenantal enemies on principle. The humanists, of course, abandon neutrality as soon as they gain sufficient political power to isolate the Christians. Their former acceptance of the principle of equal time for Jesus becomes no time for Jesus. Because they are, epistemolo because they are epistemologically naive, this always surprises the Christians. Neutrality is a myth. Humanists understand this. Quote, R.J. Rushduni, 1959. All created reality is revelational in character. Its revelation of God is unavoidable and inescapable. But the natural man seeks to suppress this witness as well as that of his own nature. As a result, the only point of contact he tolerates is one which concedes his claim to autonomy. The only way the Christian can deal with this stubborn and willful blindness is by head-on collision, by an all-out challenge to the natural man. He must reason by presupposition, and the ontological trinity, as taught in the scriptures, is the presupposition of all human predica predication. All reasoning is by presupposition, but too little reasoning is consistently and self-consciously presuppositional. Some years ago, a Western trader found his work vastly enhanced by his half-white, half-Indian status. Among the Indians, he naturally and easily spoke of his mother's tongue, acted as, acted as one of them, and reasoned in terms of their culture and faith. Among the white miners and ranchers, he readily fell into his father's ways, his father's skepticism of Indian myth, and the white man's sense of superiority. Although often accused of hypocrisy, a sin not uncommon among such mixed bloods and a source of advantage to them, this was not entirely true in his case. He shared in both outlooks and lived in unresolved tension and frustration. In a sense, this is the position of a natural man today. A creature created in God's image, his entire being is revelational of God. In order to have science, he must begin with Christian assumptions and presuppose the unity of science and of knowledge. But, being fallen, he now presupposes his autonomy and attempts to suppress, wherever he becomes conscious of its implications, this basic presupposition of God. As a result, his thinking is inconsistent, reveals his tension and frustration, and lacks an epistemological self-consciousness. To live consistently in terms of his autonomy would plunge him into the shoreless and bottomless ocean of relativity, but to live and think consistently in terms of the self-contained God would involve a total surrender to his sovereignty. The natural man tries, as indeed too many regenerate men do also, to live in terms of both presuppositions, to have a foot in both camps, and have the advantages offered by both God and Satan, but the results of this conscious and subconscious effort is tension and frustration. End quote. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and his kingdom.